I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Esther. We're going to be looking at chapters 5, 6, and 7 this morning. For those who weren't here, uh, two weeks ago we started our look at the book of Esther, and uh, next week I'm going to be finishing it as we complete this series on the five little scrolls that we've been looking at this summer. The book of Esther is a great story. I mean, if you haven't read it in a while, I would encourage you to sit down and just read it through in one setting. Uh, It's filled with humor. It's filled with irony. There are these amazing turn of events. There is courage. There is tension as you are trying to, you know, think of how this story is going to be resolved. And it's just a very interesting story. And what it so clearly shows all the way through is God's providence as he orders the events of his people for their good. That same God is at work in our life as well. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. For those who weren't uh, here two weeks ago, I just want to share kind of a little bit of the story to bring us all up to speed on where we're at. Remember the Jews are living in the nation of Persia or in the Persian Empire at this time. It's around 483 B.C. The exile has passed and some of the Jews have returned to Jerusalem. But they are still weak. They are still very vulnerable. There are those that are trying to rebuild the temple, but that work has been delayed. It's been opposed by opposition of others. There are those who want to see the city of Jerusalem rebuilt, but the city is still in ruins. And here is this people that is wrestling with the issue of how do we live for God in a pagan world? I mean, we have no control. We are really weak in terms of what is going on. And yet God has called us to live distinctively for him. And what happens at this time in history is that Xerxes, who is the ruler of Persia, deposes his queen and a search is made to look for another woman who will be queen. And in God's providence, he raises up Esther, who comes to that position of being the queen of all of Persia. She's kept her identity secret that she is a Jew. But now there is this order that has been given because of the evil Haman an advisor to the king, that on such and such date in this very year, every Jew is to be annihilated. It is an evil plot to really destroy the Jewish people as a nation and as individuals. And Esther is facing this dilemma. What does she do? To go to the king unsummoned to make a request or to reveal her identity might mean her own death. But to be silent could mean the death of her people. And Mordecai, her cousin, who has raised her up as his own daughter because she was an orphan, Mordecai has raised her up and he goes to her and he tells her that perhaps this is the very reason why you have come to such a place for such a time as this. What will Esther do? Well, that's what we're going to look at in these chapters 5, 6, and 7. Let's pray. Father, as we think about your word and the application that it has to our life, there are many different things that you may bring to mind in a message like this. I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would encourage us this morning. You would help us to live with resolve, to be your people in the midst of an ungodly world. And I pray that when those opportunities come for us, that are those divine opportunities where we are to take a stand for Christ, that we will have the same kind of courage and resolve to do that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.
Well, the, for, the first point that I want to make this morning from this message is that God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. We see that in other places of Scripture as well, but it's specifically here in the book of Esther. We are going to see how God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Listen to what the author of Scripture writes here. In chapter 5, verse 1, he says, On the third day Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. And when he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And then the king asked, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be given you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, Now what is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be granted. And Esther replied, My petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition to fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. And then I will answer the king's question. Let's pause there. Esther has come. She has taken this step of faith now to come into the king's presence unsummoned. She puts on her royal robes. She comes as the queen of Persia. For the first time in this book, she is addressed as the queen of Persia. But how did she become queen? It was basically a beauty contest, if you will. But she had no control over that. It was God who sovereignly worked in the king's heart and brought her to this position to be queen. She risked her life to come into the king's presence unsummoned. In fact, there are uh, archaeological discoveries have shown reliefs from that time that picture the king of Persia seated on the throne with a long scepter in his hand, and behind him stands a guard or a soldier with a large battle axe. It's a picture of what could happen. Either the king reaches out his scepter, or you lose your head. And it happened in that time period. And as he extends out his scepter, it was really an act of grace. And she comes and she touches the tip of that scepter. And who did that? God did. The Scripture tells us that the heart of a king is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And it was God who caused the king to show favor toward Esther at that time. The king replies to her, Up to half of my kingdom I will give to you. Now, you need to understand, that sounds like a pretty generous offer, but really that was just a common figure of speech at that time. The king didn't intend for you to ask for half of his kingdom. Uh, Really what it meant was that he was favorably disposed to hearing your request. Same thing shows up in Scripture too when Herod was so pleased with Herodias who danced for him that he offered her up to half of his kingdom and she asked for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And 
here was a king who was extending to Esther. What is it that you are asking for? And her request is simple. Come to a banquet that I have prepared for you and for Haman. She has thought this through. She has asked her people to fast and to pray for three days. She is going to wait for the right time to make her request. She wants the king and Haman to come to this banquet, a private banquet in which she will state what her request really is. Here is a woman whom God is using in a remarkable way. And what I want you to see about Esther is that she is just simply an ordinary woman who God chose to use at this time in this extraordinary way as he brought her to a position of power and influence. And sometimes that's hard for us to comprehend. You know, we read these stories of people in the Bible and we think of them as great heroes and, and, uh, you know, something that is way beyond what we could ever do. And yet, by God's grace, He simply takes ordinary people to accomplish His work. In an amazing passage, for example, in James chapter 5, verse 17, the Scripture says that Elijah was a man just like us, and he prayed. You know, we think of Elijah the prophet and the miracles that he did. It wasn't Elijah who had that power. It was God's power who chose to work through Elijah. And the Scripture comes to us and it says that Elijah was just an ordinary man. Just like each of us. If God chose to use us in that way, He could do that. That's His sovereign grace. And at this point in history, He was looking for this woman who He could use to bring about the deliverance of His people. What made the difference in Esther's life? Well, the turning point for Esther came when she chose to identify herself with the people of God. She had up to this point kept her identity secret that she was a Jew living in Persia. And now comes the time when she must choose to identify not just with the people of God, but with God openly and publicly. That was powerful. You know, when I read this story, it reminded me of a scene in the movie The Return of the King that's part of the Lord of the Rings trilogy where Aragorn is to be the future king of his people but he's wrestling with doubts in his own life about this. He has fears and he has doubts. Can I do this? And Elrond, who is this elven king, comes to him with the sword that's been reforged, the sword that he brings to him. And he urges Aragorn to take up that sword and to put aside the ranger, put aside the old life that he has lived and become the man that he was made to be. And you see this moment when Aragorn takes up the sword to lead his people. At the moment that Aragorn did that, he did not know what the outcome would be. He only knew what he needed to do. When Esther chose to identify with the people of God, she didn't know what the outcome would be. She just knew what she had to do, what God was calling her to do. You know, and that's the same thing for each of us. When we come to Christ and we choose to identify with Him, the moment we choose to identify ourselves with Christ, all of the resources of heaven are at our disposal. I mean, we come to Him and we say, Lord, here I am. Use me. And what happens in our life? The Bible tells us that we are united with Christ. 
that He gives us His Holy Spirit. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. We have at our disposal the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, all of those things that are part of what He gives us to do battle. We are sealed and protected by the power of God. We are a new creation in Christ. Now live differently. Walk in that power. Look to Christ each and every day. Become the person you were meant to be. That's what the Scripture challenges us to do. And we don't know how things may turn out in our life either. You know, you go to the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, that great hall of faith that describes those who lived and walked by faith in their life. And you read there how some of them were put to death. Some of them were sawn in two. Some of those were thrown to the wild beasts. And yet there were others who conquered kingdoms and put foreign armies to flight. We'd rather be on that half of the story, wouldn't we? And yet all were commended for their faith. All served God in their time. And that's the challenge to us, to come to Christ, to give Him our life and to say, God, here I am. am. Use me today. Use me and guide me and direct me. Because my desire is to please You and to be used according to Your purposes. Well, the moment we choose to do that, something else happens. We enter into a great spiritual battle. And we see that so clearly here in the book of Esther. The battle that is rages. And we see that in chapter 5, verses 9 to 14, with Haman's rage against Mordecai. We read there that Haman went out that day happy and in high spirits because he had been invited to this banquet. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons and all the ways the king had honored him, and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. And she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. And his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Well, have a gallows built, seventy-five feet high, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai hanged on it. And then go with the king to the dinner and be happy. The suggestion delighted Haman, and he had the gallows built. If there was ever an example of pride going before a fall, this was it. You know, Haman's thinking, it's me and the king. I mean, we're tight, you know, we're really close here. And Esther recognizes that. And I'm the only one that's going to be honored in this way. And he's really patting himself on the back as he thinks about this. And yet he's not happy. Because here's this man, Mordecai, who refuses to bow to him or show him the respect that somehow he thinks he deserves. And Zeresh, his wife, gives him counsel. And her advice is very much like Jezebel's advice to Ahab. In 1 Kings 21, there's a story about a time when Ahab wanted a vineyard, a garden next to his place that was owned by Naboth. And he couldn't have it. Naboth wouldn't give it to him. 
And as a king, King Ahab pouted. He was like a spoiled child who couldn't get what he wanted, and he basically pouted about it. And so his wife, Jezebel, says to him, Well, it's simple. Her solution was to murder Naboth and take the vineyard. That's all you need to do. You're the king, aren't you? Why don't you just do that? And so Zeresh's counsel here is to build this gallows 75 feet high. I mean, it's way out of proportion to what the uh, offense is here even. And it's a reflection of his ego and his pride. Now you need to understand too, because some of your translations of the Bible are going to be a little different on this point. When it talks about a gallows here, normally we think of that's a place where someone is hung on a rope, on a gallows. But that's not the normal means of execution in Persia. The normal means of execution in Persia was to be impaled on a pole. And the body was to be hung in that fashion and displayed for others to see. And so some of your translations will have that he erected a 75-foot high pole on which to impale Mordecai. What happens? And how does God work in this situation? Well, what we see in chapter 6 is that God orders the events of our lives to accomplish his divine purposes. God is at work in this situation, as we will see in many of the following events. But listen to what the story tells us here. That night the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. And it was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers, who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Well, nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. And then the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows he had erected for him. And his attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Well, bring him in, the king ordered. And when Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, Who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So he answered the king, For the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn, and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on his head. And then let the royal robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes, let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead them on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. We'll stop there. Do you see God's providence in the following events? That night, the king could not sleep. The turning point in this whole story is a sleepless night by the king totally outside of Esther's control, Mordecai's control, anyone else but God. And so here's this king who can't sleep at night. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it says that God took his sleep from him. 
And so he orders the book of the Chronicles, these annals of the kingdom, to be read to him. And where does this attendance start to read? This is five years ago this happened. And it just happens to be the story about Mordecai, the man who is so central to this particular story. God did that. The place he opened up the book and began to read was about Mordecai. The king is stunned that nothing was done to honor Mordecai. I mean, good deeds were to be rewarded as a way to increase loyalty to the king. I mean, here was a man who had done something that was worthy of honor. And he'd sort of been snubbed and forgotten. It's really a statement about Mordecai's character that he remained faithful even though he had been neglected or overlooked or forgotten. And Mordecai continued to serve the king. Just then, Haman enters the court. Amazing, the timing of all of these events as they come together. And the king asks him this question, what should be done for the man the king wants to honor? And Haman in his pride just can't simply see anybody else. And here is this secret. You know, Haman has kept this secret that it's Mordecai that he really wants to kill. And now the king, in a sense, has a secret that it's Mordecai that he wants to honor. And we, the readers, see what's going on here and catch the humor of it all. But the great reversal begins at this point. Haman wants to hang Mordecai. And instead he ends up being the one who is forced to honor him. And Haman is humiliated. And then comes that prophetic statement from Haman's wife that if Mordecai is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. We see that in verse 12. Afterward, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that happened to him. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. And while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared for him. His demise is coming. But who did all of this? God did. I want to ask you this morning, how have you seen God's hand in your life? If we had more time, it would be interesting to hear the stories that each of us would have about that. I love to hear people's testimonies, for example. When we had the baptism service recently and people shared how they had come to know Christ. And every story, as someone tells how they came to know Him, there's usually another person, place, or an event that is mentioned as significant. You know, I was going this way, and then God brought into my life a friend who told me about Christ. Or I was struggling with this in my life, you know, and one day I turned on the radio and I was listening and there was a word that was just for me. Or I came to church one Sunday and there was a song that really touched my heart and that morning the pastor gave a message and I surrendered my life to Christ. Or it was after Awana with my parents when I went home that night I wanted to make sure about my relationship with Him. Who orders those events? They're not of our doing. God is the one who is at work in our life to bring about those things, to bring us to a point of decision. Will we choose to follow Christ? Will we give Him our all? And you can think about that in so many different events of our life. If you're married, how did God bring you together? Or as you look back as a family over the years, how has God provided for you? 
How has he opened doors up to serve or to grow in your relationship with Christ? How has he provided for you financially? The writer of Scripture wants us to see how active God is in our world, that his hand is moving behind the scenes even when we can't see it. And thirdly, God encourages, he empowers his children to overcome the world. And we see that in chapter 7. We come now to Esther's request. King ha- the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. And as they were drinking wine on that second day, the king again asked Queen Esther, What is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. And then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. And King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? And Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. And then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. And just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. And the king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in this house? And as soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. And then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A gallows seventy-five feet high stands by Haman's house. He had it made for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. And the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the king's fury subsided. Esther's request is simple. Grant me my life. Spare my people. The king is shocked to learn that there is someone who would want to kill his queen and her people. Who is this? When she reveals that it is Haman, Haman is terrified. The king is too angry to speak. Probably in his mind he's working this whole thing through and he realizes what he had done by giving permission to Haman to send out a decree throughout his land. And Haman stayed to beg the queen for his life. And he fell on her couch. Again, the Jewish commentary suggests that the angel Gabriel pushed him just a little bit. It was very bad timing. By protocol, Haman should have left the room when the king left because no one but the king was ever to be alone with a woman from his harem. And he stayed. And so when... The king comes back in and he sees Haman fallen upon the queen. He charges her with molesting the queen. And when Harbona reveals that Haman had built a gallows to execute Mordecai, a man who had defended the king, it implies that maybe Haman was in on the plot to kill the king. And it is another charge against him. And Haman is impaled on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Now, I know that there are people 
who read this story and sometimes say, you know, that just seems a little bit too neat. Could that have really happened? I mean, is this just a story or is this an actual history? It is history. And the Bible presents it in that way as a story, in the form of a story, but it is a story about an actual thing that happened at that time. Could it happen again? Fast forward to 1953 and Joseph Stalin. Joseph Stalin was at the height of his power in the Soviet Union. Millions, millions had died under his reign of terror. Sentenced to work in the death camps or put to death directly as enemies of the state. In 1953, he came up with a plot to destroy and kill and annihilate all of the Jews in the Soviet Union. He fabricated a story about the Jewish doctors. But the Jewish doctors were trying to kill the top communist leaders when they were treating them. It was called the infamous doctor's plot. He spun a story of a vast conspiracy that involved Jews under the United States direction that were seeking to do this. And he went on the public media and he told that to the whole Soviet Union of what was going on. And this was called the doctor's plot. And he ordered four giant prison camps to be built in Siberia and in the Arctic North where every Jew was to be sent to die. Well, in God's providence, it never happened. Because two weeks later, at a state dinner, Stalin, who had been drinking heavily, collapsed at that dinner. And four days later, he died. And the orders were never carried out. Some were so shocked by it, by what he had said. Some suspected that he was actually poisoned by the chief of the Soviet secret police. But what's really interesting is that the day on which he collapsed, it was March 1st, 1953, which that year was the 14th day of Adar in the Jewish calendar, or Purim. He collapsed on the very day when God had rescued his people long ago. Was that just a coincidence? You know, to every Jew who saw what happened, they knew it wasn't just a coincidence. That God had once again rescued his people. God watches over his people. God watches over his church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. It doesn't mean that there won't be struggles or persecution or even suffering and death by believers. It's going on today. Some of you have gotten the emails of the report in Orissa, India this past week of the violence taking place there at the hands of Hindu extremists. Twenty-one believers had died in the last report that I heard. There were over 400 churches destroyed, 500 homes destroyed, Christians living in danger for their lives. And yet the church will grow and overcome. In the book of Romans, Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verses 35 to 39. <laughs> i got to find a place here in my Bible as well. He tells us, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from His love. Well, the conclusion is that God wants to use you and He wants to use me to accomplish great things for His glory. I don't know what God's plans are for you or for me as we look to the future. Our step is simply to follow Him today and the next day and the next day. But the defining moment in our life comes when we choose to surrender our life to Christ and say to Him, Here am I, use me. And the moment we do that, all of heaven's resources become available to us. And He will use us as a part of His divine plan and purpose. I've gone a little bit long today, I see, and I want to ask you to stand as we close today. And I'd really like this to be a prayer of dedication as we are at the beginning of a new year of ministry. I want to ask you to consider how God may want you to serve and to be a part of His kingdom work in our world. And I'm going to close our time in prayer, and then if you guys want to lead in the next line you can or if people need to leave you can do that too as we're walking out but let's pray Father we thank you for your call on our life and for the way that you order the events and circumstances to bring us to a knowledge of Christ and we stand here today as a congregation and as individuals and Lord I pray that all of us in our heart today can say Lord here am I use me Use me fully. I want to serve You. I want my gifts, my time, my resources to be used in a way that fits in with Your kingdom purposes and Your call on my life. I want to honor You in what I say and do. I want to be used by God to help reach this generation for Jesus Christ. Can you say that in your heart? And can you make that commitment to Christ today? Lord, by Your Holy Spirit, May you empower each of us to fulfill the commitments that we have made. In Jesus' name, amen.